Welcome to the Winning Golf Podcast, where we will help you play better golf more often. Prepare to take your game to the next level and play the golf of your dreams with our host coach, Mark Pearson. Hello and welcome. Today, my guest is my longtime friend and colleague, Darren Webster Clark. Not only has he been a fantastic coach for over 30 years, He's coached multiple winners on the European Tour and at the Olympic Games. Let's hear what he's got to say about helping you on your way to winning golf. Hi, Darren. How are you? Very good, thanks, Mark. Awesome. You been up to anything today? Uh, no. Uh, just watching all the rain come down and uh, thinking I'm glad to be inside rather than out. But, uh, it's good that the lockdown's allowing us to get to the golf course anyway. Good man. Uh, first of all, thanks obviously for coming on Winning Golf. Um, we've known each other a long time. Uh, obviously, you don't bear the scars from when we were together at Bond Hay a long, long time ago, uh, which is good. And obviously, since, since you separated from me, you went on to do some great things. So uh, for the people back home, uh, what we want to talk to today is some of the things you can learn from tour players, what the average golfer can learn from a tour player. Uh, but can you fill in the blanks probably you know, in, in how you got to that stage of being able to coach those kind of players, you know, what inspired you a little bit as a coach and, and what that journey was like as a coach for you? Yeah, as you say, uh, I don't really want to put how many years it was that since we made 30, yeah, scary that. <laughs> uh, but following that, I, uh, I moved to Lindrick Golf Club, did some work with Pete Cowan and uh, that was a good introduction because we met a lot of tour players at the time. He was looking after Woozy and Westwood and Darren Clark. And uh, so that really got me into the coaching side of things a lot more. Uh, following that, I was offered a job at uh, Golf Club Schloss Breitenberg in Hamburg, Germany. And because I had still aspirations as a player, I didn't have any sponsors. I thought, right, I've got to go and make some money to go and try and get my talker. I went out there, tried for the tour card, was unsuccessful, but realized I was doing really well teaching. And I had seven really enjoyable years there. Great course, great family, and was well looked after. And then uh, Pete approached me to go to Oslo to open one of his academies there. So uh, I reluctantly left Germany, uh, but was very excited to go to Oslo. And that's where I've been ever since, basically. Uh, I was at Miklagard Golf, which was a European tour course, for seven years. Fantastic facility. And then I was headhunted by a group of uh, philanthropists who were trying to improve Norwegian golf. And they set up a centre in uh, the centre of Oslo called Top Golf. And there they wanted to build a gym, use physios, mental guys, uh, build a short game facility. We had indoor facilities for the, the winter. So they were on my wavelength of what we could do to really make a mark on Norwegian golf. So I went and joined them. And at that time, I was approached by the Golf Federation to help Henrik Bjornstad uh, come back. He'd, he'd taken a leave of golf, he was a really good European tour player, wanted to come back, and he had aspirations to get on the PGA Tour. So we worked together for a year, and he got his PGA Tour card. Uh, so that opened the, the way to form uh, Team Norway, basically. And that was where we were joined together and, uh, by Jung Carlsen, who's probably one of the world's foremost putting coaches. And he started heading it up and we got a physio in, we got a mental coach. We had access to a place called Olympiatoppen, which is Norway's Olympic center, where they've got some incredible people working there on nutrition and 
everything basically. So I was very lucky, I think through my journey, I've been able to access a lot of very clever people, uh, very knowledgeable people. And basically, as you know, that's all we're doing, we're learning all the time. I, I yeah, don't absolutely. know many coaches that are not, not learning. So it's been a great little journey for me. And I've been very fortunate that I've been able to be at the forefront of, of golf. I wanted to be there as a player. I wasn't good enough, but I was able to get out there and uh, witness the, the top players and be around them. And, uh, and then along the way, I've helped some good players, Soren Hansen, Anders Hansen, Alex Noren, a uh, good friend and long-time player of mine, Richard Green. We've had five European Tour wins together. Uh, so it's been an exciting journey. I mean, Mariana Skarpnor, she was number two in Europe last year. So we've had good success. But I think that success has come from my own maturity and my own willingness to be open to ideas and also the realisation it's just not the golf swing. When I went on tour in 2000, I was looking at players and, and realising everything they were doing wrong. Uh, but then seeing that Peter, I was shadowing at the time, was just almost brushing them down, saying everything was good, go on there, go and play. And basically realised it's a lot to do with the mental state. So that's pretty much where I got to. And uh, through a little bit of family illness, we've had to return to the UK. And now we're stuck here with the coronavirus lockdown. So I was uh, very appreciative that you've uh, let me come and join you at your, your fantastic centre. Oh, so well, that, uh, that, it's exciting. Times that, that's a pleasure that you come in. And I'm sure you're going to add some, some great value to our academy at Alton. Um, so your influence as a coach, uh, your influence, should I say, on you as coaching, obviously, Pete, was up there. What do you think Pete brought to you as a coach? Pete Cowan, that I is? Think, yeah, I think Pete, he taught me how to be a coach, to be a communicator. Uh, he's an excellent communicator. And uh, he's, his strengths are he's, he's very good at getting the best out of the players. Uh, so I learned a lot there. And uh, as I say, it was, it was a lot of technique uh, that basically I didn't really understand at the time. And I think there was a, a period in my golf where I didn't understand all the intricacies. So I was very fortunate. I met a guy called Mac O'Grady, uh, who basically filled in all the blanks, plus a lot more. And I had uh, six enjoyable learning years with him, and where I really learned a lot about the technique. And uh, as I say, filled in all the gaps for me from a technical standpoint. And uh, I feel made me a better, better coach. And then from that, the influences really mental-wise. Uh, I spent a lot of years on, on the tour like yourself. And in, in the evenings, we were very fortunate. You'd go out and you'd, you'd spend time with other coaches or psychologists. There's a lot of psychologists yeah. on the tour. So we both sat with them and picked the brains. And we're trying to help the players all the time. And Andy Duncan was a good influence on me. He was uh, very gracious in giving me a lot of his time. And that he still does to this day. So I'm, I'm very grateful to him. So. And a really interesting guy to talk to as well. A fantastic guy. I mean, he's got yeah. history. I mean, he's, he's certainly been around the block. And, uh, and it's these sort of people you need, the ones who've been out there and, and live life, basically. And I think that's, that's the same with others coaches. Uh, I think we're getting better and better as we get older. And uh, hopefully we can keep passing that on to our players. It's uh, our excuse and we stick it? into it, is it? We get better as we get older. Oh, well, that's it. That's it. 
It is. Okay, so that, that, that's a, a, a pretty conclusive uh, up-to-date of where we go and, and, and some of the influences on you. I have to ask you one question. I can't believe, actually, since we, we've spent a bit more time together over the last sort of six months or so, I can't believe I've not really asked you this question. Uh, what was it like to coach at the Olympics? Oh, yeah, that was... Uh, it, it, I, I put it, it's probably one of the highlights of my coaching career, which, I mean, we went out there with the, the attitude, it's just going to be another tournament, but it wasn't. I mean, we stayed in the players' village. I mean, you've got Usain Bolt in there. I mean, we got up close and personal with him. Uh, even, uh, or it's a great story, Bubba Watson and uh, the guy behind you on the wall, oh, crikey, his name eludes me. Uh, Ricky Fowler, Ricky there we Fowler, go. Ricky Fowler, yeah. So, I'm trying yeah, to look yeah. in the camera to see who's behind me. Yeah, so Ricky, so Ricky and Bubba, they, uh, they were staying in a house, as most players do. They'd rented a house and everything. They jacked the house in and went into the players' village. And, and in the players' village, they were the, you stayed in apartments that weren't very highly furnished. The beds were terrible, but you were in the village. And uh, you ate at like what could only be described as army barrack-type canteen. There's long tables, plastic chairs, almost plastic plates and knives and forks. And you went along, you got your food, but all the teams were there. Everybody's in the tracksuit. So it was an unbelievable experience being next to them. I mean, we, we used to jump on the buses at night, go into the stadium, pretend we were athletes because we got our tracksuits on and then watch some, <laughs> some wonderful athletics. So, but the... The tournament itself was, was a great tournament. And I think for a lot of players uh, who didn't go, I think they really missed something special there. So uh, the Olympics and Augusta are two coaching highlights for me that uh, I really am pleased to have, uh, to have experienced. Okay, so you've top trumped me there because I've done all the other majors, but I've not done Augusta and I've not done the Olympics. Thanks very much. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm putting my place there. Yeah. Uh, okay, so but so did it feel like a golf tournament? Did you feel like you were more of a team? Did it? Did the players feel more of a team, or did it? Was you know were what? they still golfers at the end playing it? It was more of a team. I mean, we had Suzanne Peterson there, Mariana, and I had Espen Costa. So we were th three Norwegian players. I was looking after out there, and uh, it was more of a team. And the Olympia top and the Olympic organization were there they arrange everything and you go under their umbrella to play in the olympics uh they ensured that you were all together so we spent a lot of time with the other norwegian athletes and everything and it was everybody was cheering on when you got back to the camp in the evening they knew the scores and mariana was up there uh top 10 very early on in fact she was leading at one stage so the, the buzz around the camp was amazing. You got back and they sensed there was going to be a medal there. And that's all it is. It's chasing those medals. And I would say Team Norway has been very good at creating a team environment. We spent a lot of time with Suzanne Pettersson at her place out in Florida. I mean, we had mornings at five o'clock in her gym, in a house. And that was one of the things for the players to have an insight what it took to be at the top. So to be able to get access to Suzanne was fantastic. She's probably one of the most knowledgeable golfers I've ever spent time with as well. And uh, coming from a sort of male chauvinist background, it was uh, I've, I've got more into the ladies golf because of Mariana and because of Suzanne. But she spent time with Greg Norman and Tiger. She's uh, great pals with Tiger. 
So the influences that she's picked up and the knowledge is fantastic. And she was very gracious in passing that on to all the team because we took a lot of young Norwegians out there who were up and coming. I mean, you've got Victor Horvland now that's just got on the PGA Tour. He won recently. Yeah. He's one of the, uh, uh, the guys that's come through the system. So they're doing things right. And I think so, historically... So did you, did you, what did you take them out there for? We took them out just to have a camp. There was, uh, I think there was about 10 players went out. So we went out to Florida and it was yeah. preparations for the Olympics. It was, uh, everything was geared. So, so it uh, was for them to have a view of what is coming. Yeah, what is coming, what is needed. I think yeah, it's, it's yeah, more okay, what yeah, is needed. Yeah. Uh, because I think what the big realization was, I mean, Suzanne's in the gym at five in the morning and she said at tournament, she'd get in there sometimes four o'clock in the morning. If she got an early tea time, she would be in there because she's had injuries. She would have to warm up and she is a consummate professional. So for us to get access to that, I mean, even the guys, the big burly guys who were in the team and they were going, they were humbled by it because I mean, this girl was working far harder than them, putting in more hours on the practice ground. And uh, they really saw, okay, this is what it takes. And at the time she was, she just being number two in the world. I think she's been number two three times in a career uh, and just not quite made it. But obviously a fantastic career and uh, a great bow out at the Solheim Cup. Absolutely. So, uh, um, yeah. So it's, it's been great being part of that team. And uh, I think when I look back, what distinguishes great players or whatever as well is, is probably a teamwork. I mean, we're, we're part of the cogs of that wheel in that we, we do the, the technical side and probably the mental, because I think when you get a player-coach relationship, we, we suddenly get access to all the personal problems and, and we get in there. And as you know, it's the mind that's, that's the key. So we get pretty much involved, but then the physios are required. These are finely tuned athletes, so you've got to keep them going. The mental side, obviously... Uh, nutritionists, everything, even the people that just get them out to tournaments. I mean, it, it is a big network that they need. So the Team Norway was a great education for me that you're not just on your own trying to do everything. It, using uh, experts, really. trying. If we didn't know the answer, find, find somebody who did. Yeah, I think, um, I think definitely the off-course stuff is, for, for the good players particularly, is really important because I, I've yet to work with anybody that's had really good success who, who hasn't had a huge amount of the off-course stuff in place to, to allow, to facilitate, if you like, uh, them to play well. And equally, I've seen players, players you know, disappear because maybe the off-course stuff wasn't in place and you know quite often it, it, a lot of it is not that closely related to golf because it affects the mind and then it affects some of the golf decisions they make and some of some of the stuff that's going on on the golf course so it's a it's a pretty good point um one one of the things or well, the main thing that i wanted uh, to to try and task you with on the on the pod today was um what can the amateurs learn from the tour players so if, if it's a team that you're looking for, that's all well and good. People will say for, you know, a tour player, he will have a physio, a coach, you know, and literally anybody wants to turn to her. What, what do you think the amateur can learn from that? Uh, I, I actually put some notes down earlier and, and this sort of brings me into it. A little story, Richard Green, I've been working with, he's a great friend of mine and he'll not mind me telling him this story. 
But when we first got out with Richard on tour, there was, there was a lot of things about his game. He asked me to help him. Uh, we met at the Open. We met at the pub, actually, and we just got chatting. And we, Shameless. We hit, we hit, Athletes don't go in the yeah, pub, Darren. Yeah, but we were drinking Cokes, don't worry. And uh, <laughs> so we got chatting. We got on well. And then, it, as you know, asked me to have a look at his swing on the range. And then a few tournaments later, we met again. And then, and then we developed. And... I saw things in his swing that could be improved and we started working on that. But one of the big things that really changed his career was the clothes he wore. Just changing his attire. He, he looked at himself and he, he, I, I went out to stay with him in Australia and uh, I'd, I got some Hugo Boss shirts and he commented, oh, they're, they're great, they look great. And he wasn't, he wasn't wearing, I mean, he's top tour player and he wasn't wearing really nice clothes at the time. And he made a decision to change it. He got a tailor who was out on the tour at the time and he got some lovely shirts and he did it. He looked impeccable. And what he also did, and this is what I think is important, he went to tournaments with his collection of clothes that he would wear each day. So he knew what he was wearing on the practice day, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Now what he did, it, it alleviated any stress he had in that morning. Oh, what am I gonna wear today? What goes with what? He actually had it all laid out, so that was one less stress. He woke up, the shirt on, trousers, down for breakfast. And I, I've known another player who was stressing in the morning what she was going to wear, and it just caused stress. So Greeny, from his clothes to his preparation, to knowing, okay, this is what we're going to do. And that's what I found with him. He elevated his game. He looked at himself and said, okay, what could be better? What can I do better? And I think that's the, the strength of the an amateur to look at the game and say, okay, what can be better? Uh, is it their equipment? Is it how they go about the business? Is it the pre-shot routine? But that with Green, I thought was amazing. And it changed his posture as well. He then walked into the player's lounge, a different posture, uh, just through he felt good about himself. And it's the same. If you put a suit on at night, you feel good about yourself. So I think even a, a, an amateur going to the golf course, having good golf clothes on that you feel like a professional as well, that you don't turn up, uh, you don't feel like you're a golf player. Actually dress like a golf player. I mean, just have that uh, pride in what you're doing. Uh, does it make a lot of difference? Yeah, I think it does. I think uh, it certainly did for Richard. And, uh, and, and you see it in the top players. They, they do look immaculate. Obviously, they're sponsored. But at the time, Richard wasn't sponsored by this clothing company. He just did it himself. And he felt that elevated his game. I mean, since then, his, his fitness has now improved. He's now at a position he's going to go for his senior tour card. So his fitness has, has got a hell of a lot better as he's got older almost. So there is things that you can keep doing. So as an amateur, look at how you go to the golf course. Do you give yourself enough time to prepare when you're there? I mean, a lot of guys just get out of the car, run to the first tee. Just going to the range, preparation, knowing what, your day's going to be. I mean, you're very keen on this planning. The planning, I mean, the planning has got to be... Uh, and what not shirt just are you going to wear now? I'm going to add that to it. That's Don't buy it. some new that's ones right. and plan which one you're going to wear. <laughs> that's right. So, uh, so that, that's another thing. So That all uh, falls into attitude, though, doesn't it? In, in many ways, that, you know, just being organised and then, and then if, if you can take away a lot of the stress, if you know how simple you're trying to make your preparation for a round of golf, et cetera, then 
you, you know, you're, you're removing some more stress, aren't you? And and the confusion that can sometimes surround playing. So Certainly. I would think very few amateurs um, give themselves enough time uh, and plan all that out and probably are almost on the back foot before they start playing. Um, regardless of how well they can play, they're probably not giving themselves uh, a chance. I'd agree with you there, definitely. Um, in terms of developing their game, how do you, what do you think uh, an amateur could learn from, from yourself and, and pros you've worked with in terms of how they take this, themselves forward? Uh, you, you mentioned just in the previous thing, attitude. And uh, one of the things I've seen with, with good players and players that want to be good is being around like-minded people, being around people that want to improve the game. Uh, you see it with the top players, the winners tend to hang together. I, I, we spoke about this. If you want to fly with the eagles or soar with the eagles, don't hang about with the chickens. And just an old saying. But it is right that good players do hang together. The ones who are missing the cuts, they all tend to congregate. It's, it's, it's quite weird in society. And I, I think it is the people who you choose to play golf with. I, I spoke to an amateur the other day and, and he was saying, yeah, well, it, I don't play with this guy anymore because he throws the clubs and I don't enjoy it. Well, that's it. I mean, if you, if you hang about with people like that, you'll start copying and mimicking. You want to be looking to be around people that have got the same passion for the goal. I mean, hopefully we, we pass on to our players that passion so they come to us because they want to elevate the game. Uh, and it's the same when we've been on tour with the youngsters. Uh, we've tried to steer them in the right direction to be around the right sort of players as well. We, I mean, we've had our radars out and we've seen probably areas that they shouldn't be going down, certain players to avoid. You're talking the, the bars club. and strip clubs again now. <laughs> I was talking about <laughs> You players. once said to me the hardest part of being a tour coach was taking the play, getting the players out of bars and strip clubs. <laughs> well, I'm winding you up. <laughs> there you go. But, I mean, that's the thing. So what I'm seeing is, is when we go out there, I've, I've done it with a lot of players, is you, you try and arrange practice rounds with good players. I mean, Brett Rumford, we, we both are a fantastic short game expert. And one of the Norwegian players I was looking after at the time was struggling. So I arranged that they play together, knowing full well that Rumi's going to share his knowledge. And uh, the guy Very came off afterwards he and he was with blown away. And, he has to give everybody a lesson as Rummy. That's it. But it's, so it's, I think as coaches, we're trying to guide from our amateur side. We, we're hopefully, we're taking a lot of the experimentation out. So they don't have to experiment too much. We can set them uh, on, a, on a correct path straight away. And, uh, but attitude, being around the right sort of players, having the right mental attitude that you, you're looking at the positives in life. I watched a great program last night. You should watch it. It's called Marvellous, about a guy called Neil Baldwin. It's worth a watch. He was the Stoke City kit man. And I watched it with my daughter, who's 10, and she loved it. And the, the guy was, uh, you, you could label him as having learning difficulties, but you wouldn't say that because I learned so much off this guy. So, I mean, it's incredible. But just his attitude that he said one day, yeah, I want to be happy. So I decided I would be. And I think that for players, especially when we play this game and we know how depressed it can make you, how low you can go, 
and having the right attitude to turn things around is so important and having the focusing on the positives as much as you can i mean there are a lot of negative thoughts that go through your mind and it's it's allowing them just to go through they're going to be in there but don't focus on them and i think with the better players and better amateurs because there's no reason why an amateur shouldn't be focusing on positives good thoughts and thoughts bring feelings i mean if you've got a bad thought you're not going to feel that great so i think from the amateur side of thing they've got to look at the top players and say well what are they doing well well they're always trying to look at the positive side of things uh that brings me to a story we're at the uspga oakland hills and uh if it wasn't i'd tell that it was medina and green he's had a first great round and he's up there i think we were top 10 when we got in for lunch by the end of lunch, we were having to go down to the practice ground to look at his grip. Of all things, I mean, this is a major tournament, and he did two bad shots. I'm not surprised, shots. but people might be. I'm not surprised. Yeah, but we're going. We're in a major tournament. We top ten, and we're going to the practice because he did two bad shots. He did two bad shots, and instead of thinking about the the 64 great shots in here, we're focusing on the two bad ones. I won't say we were, but but Greeny was. And because he wanted to, he wanted to win it. So he was wanting perfection. So by the time we got to the and searching for it, uh, we got the psychologist down and just trying to get him thinking better. Now we sat in the hotel later that night after we realised that this was a bit silly, and we watched Tiger's interview. Uh, Tiger was way down the field. He'd had a bad start. He'd sprayed the ball everywhere. I mean, we were watching him. He was all over the fairways. And his interview was talking about how he knocked it over the fairway on five onto the other fairway and he managed to escape and he chipped and putted and saved. Uh, but it was all about, yeah, that was a bad shot, that was a bad shot. But he finished his interview with just positives, saying, I made a great save there. That was a fantastic bird. It had a great swing and it was all positive. So you could see the mindset. And we sat there and we watched it and just the learning to say, well, hold on a minute. He's talked about the bad stuff, but that's gone. Now he's just looking at the real positive side. So when he goes to sleep at night, he's just got positive thoughts in his mind, which was a little bit opposite to where we were earlier in the day. So again, that was a great learning curve for us to keep on the positive. So I think for amateurs especially, they're going to hit more bad shots than good ones in comparison to the, the best players. But they have to focus on what they're doing well because that's, that's the goal, to hit more good shots. So it's no good focusing on the bad one. Sure, as a learning thing, what did I do wrong? But more importantly, what do I want to do to hit the good one? So I would say from amateurs, I mean, good players. I've, I've surrounded good players sometimes with business people. I mean, really successful business people. And allowed them to talk to them or play with them. And they talk about their attitude, their goal setting. Uh, one of my good friends in, in Oslo, he's up at four every morning when he's in his real busy time and he's out there, he's doing work. So he's drive, his determination. And that's to really pass on to the players as well, is that uh, if you're going to be successful in anything, you've got to put the time in, you've got to be dedicated and you've got to have the right attitude. And I think that's the, the top of the pyramid, having the right attitude. Yeah, totally. And, and it's, it is difficult to perform well if you don't feel good. So you need to pick up on the positives, but then obviously... We need to be realistic and create a plan to improve areas. And so the, the professionalism and obviously the work ethic is then important, isn't it? Obviously, uh, from that point of view. Um, 
almost all this so far has centered around attitude, which, which I think might surprise a lot of people. But when, when you talk to elite coaches, everybody thinks we're talking about, you know, a specific of the golf swing. And as you and I know, when you stood there with a player on a range at a tour event, uh, it's almost far from that at times, isn't it? You know, almost all the languages around different things and different topics. But I am going to push you a little bit on golf swing. Uh, and so I'm going to say, what what kind of things do you think the average golfer should be looking to learn from a tour player golf swing-wise? Because I know they'll be out there and they'll all love to hear one or two snippets that you might want to pass on. Oh, I could talk for hours. I would say, if, if I was going to talk about anything uh, from a top tour player is how they control the club face. So it, it really is how they're using the the, the body in that they're not just rotating the hands and flicking the, the club head at it. I like to see a player using his body. So from that, I, I look at the footwork. I look at how the knees, the hips work because I want to get good leg action. I think for me, I like to see players with great leg action because I know from that, everything above, it's a joint sequencing, basically. Uh, you've got to have the joint sequence in a particular way. I mean, if you get to the top of the backswing and you start your downswing by throwing the club, as a lot of high handicappers do, everything's gone. But if you can start with the left knee, the, the hips moving across, getting the right leg to stabilize, then the arms coming down, particularly the importance of the right elbow. I mean, for me, that's, that's a real positive. The position of the right elbow in the downswing is crucial. Uh, and then basically just turning everything together through the ball, not having independent actions going. I like to see all the body, the club working as one unit. When I'm watching there are this thing, a lot of there is a lot of flat footed high handicappers and almost non existent as good players. Precisely. Yes. Yeah. I mean the footwork in a great play. One of the things I think I think as well, I mean, we could talk for hours on golf swings, but I was, he, an amateur once told me this. He said, he said, if, he, he thanked me for the lesson. And afterwards he said, if Einstein was to explain to us about the theory of relativity, he would make it simple because he understands the complexities of it. And I think that's, that's the thing for a golf swing as well. Our job is to describe it as simplistic as we can because if you start thinking of all the complexities, you can't move. So I think great swings look simple. They, they flow, the sequencing's there. They look super, super simple. And, uh, and I think as a golf player, they need to have a simple movement in the mind. I mean, it's for us to go through the complexities of it. But hopefully, as good coaches, we can pass that on in simple terminology that the player understands. You know and I know, some players love all the ins and outs of it. As you mentioned, Rummy there. I mean, he understands the complexities and he loves talking about it. And he can digest it all and he can use it. Uh, but you get other players, they don't want to hear that. They, they really. I was talking to Ledbetter once when he coached Ernie Els. And he said, Ernie used to hate seeing himself on the video. He turned to Leds and said, listen, that's your job. You tell me what to do. I don't want to see it. I don't need to see it. You just tell me what to do. So some players just want it as simple as it can be. I mean, Monty was a phenomenal player, but he didn't mess about too much with technique. He just stood there and hit it. But other players like the complexities. But I like to, to try and do my teaching that the 
player, we can focus on simple moves, but getting the sequencing correct. I think that's it. Footwork, knees, hips, and uh, good sequencing of everything. Okay, I've got a picture now of a uh, Darren Webster Clark player has a new shirt. Yeah, he can control <laughs> the club face. And he's got good footwork going through. I'm getting, I'm getting an identity now. To That's, it. Uh, you're getting my model player now. <laughs> so, okay, golf swing. Talk me through. Uh, you talked about rummy and short game there. Uh, what do you, what do you like to see? How do you, how do you think we can pass on some, some gems on the short game? Uh, I think one of the things is uh, our manufacturers are like this, but definitely you've got to get the right equipment. You've got to get the right bounce on you. I'm talking wedges now around the green, and uh, sometimes players don't I, have the right I, sort I always of equipment. Find, I have struggle, and I'll tell you what I think in a second. How, how do you recommend a player goes about choosing a wedge? I would say you've, you've got to go and have a fitting. You've got to go and try them. I mean, I'm a great believer in you've got to try something. Uh, for me, it's always been the look. I mean, I'm a bit of an old traditionalist. I like bladed-looking clubs. I like a certain uh, type of club. And I like to feel the bounce as it goes through. Whatever's it stamped tough, on it. Though, I, isn't it? Because there are very few places where you can actually go and try a wedge and feel the bounce on grass. And well, it, It's not an easy scenario, but I think it really is important that, you know, You've got to try it. And then I think maybe you've got to be prepared, in my opinion, I think you've got to be prepared to, to make a mistake almost on your wedge and say, well, I've played with it for a few weeks and there isn't enough bounce on or, or loft or whatever. Yeah. The shot's not coming out right. And, and then move again. Because until you've played with them for a little while, I mean, you know what it's like with the tour players. They chop and change very easily on those clubs, don't they? Depending on grass and where they're playing as well. Well, I mean, we, we were on the tour wagon at Augusta, dropping that one in again. Uh, but Roger Cleveland was on there, and he was, he was, uh, he was doing Greeny's wedges. So he's, he's doing the wedges, and he, he said, to, he was joking with Greeny, he says, when did you last change your wedge? And he says, oh, I've had this one years. And he laughed, he says, I can see with the grooves. And obviously, you need grooves tight around Augusta. You've got to stop that ball on the green. Uh, but he says, Mickelson changes every six weeks. He's, and he's got a ver varying clubs and everything. Now, all right, these players are given them or whatever, but I think for a lot of amateurs, golf is their passion. It's their free time. They want to enjoy it as much as they can. And as you say, I think sometimes you've got to, I've had wedges, you've had wedges that you just don't get on with. And then you find one that you love. And then you're constantly just trying to match something in to, to copy that one. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that just sometimes you've got to admit you know what, this is not right for me. I mean, I had a lesson the other day and he's, he's swinging great with a driver. His numbers were great with a driver, but it was, just wasn't the right sort of flight. And uh, I just said to him, I said, well, you know what? I think we've got to look at drivers. I says, I'm not a fitting guy, but you need to go to somebody who is and try and figure out this driver. I says, because technically it's, it's great. You're moving good, but you're certainly not getting the ball flight out of it. And I think with technology improving, there is an opportunity to try. and uh, But with wedges particularly, I agree. I think sometimes you've just got to bite the bullet, try something else uh, until you find the right one. Mm, it's not easy. It's definitely not easy. Um, but you, you think that the club is really important there? No, definitely. I think probably the shaft is, is the key thing. Not in wedges so much, but in the irons and the driver. Uh, I think shaft technology now is... Oh, 
compared to the, the old sticks I've got now, when I just borrow my pupils, clubs and everything, and I hit a few, it's just, uh, it's night and day. Uh, today's technology, I mean, the amount of money we know that goes into it would be around those factories and the technology, the research and development is phenomenal. And uh, that's why people are hitting the ball further. I mean, I hit the ball further now and I'm, I'm much older than I was and that's just through the technology. So uh, definitely equipment helps, the right equipment. And it goes back to seeking out experts. I mean, you've got to go to qualified fitters. Uh, so, I mean, that's, that's, that's the basic. Okay, so, uh, you, so new shirt, new wedge. <laughs> yeah. Good for <laughs> business. Yeah, good pro shops are good, aren't they? I should open a pro shop. Um, uh, give, me, give me a slant on putting for the amateur. What can, what can they learn from the good players? Well, I'll tell you what, we, I don't know if you remember this, we went to see Harold Swash together at the Belfry. Oh, we did, didn't we? I remember we that. We did, yeah. didn't it? Yeah, you remember that now. So, uh, yeah. and again, I mean, that's, that's why I think we get on well together. We, uh, you, you're the same opinion as me. You go and see experts in the field. You'll, you'll extract knowledge and uh, you're not afraid to ask questions. And we went down, we had a couple of days with Harold and uh, looked at what he did. But one of the things I took away from that was the importance of, where the club sits in the hand, uh, under the thumb, firm in the wrist up, how the wrist was set, the left wrist. So I like to see my play. Now, I've had lots of players grip it different, and, but what I personally like, what I do myself, I like the left wrist nice and solid, and the right hand is my feel hand. I like to, to have that as my distance control. So my left hand is really guiding the putt ahead, and my right hand is delivering all the feel for the distance. And... That distance, I, I get players actually just rolling balls, just to get a feeling of, of rolling balls. And I was very fortunate uh, last year, you invited me to one of these Aimpoint uh, seminars that you were running mm -hmm. uh, with uh, your good friend from Romanby. And Brian, went and Brian Ridley. Yeah, Brian. Brian. And uh, I, I learned so much from there, because green reading is essential. And I've always done that, but done it through more just experience on the greens and we've looked at clock faces and the entry points and everything but uh but then to to really understand the feet and i spoke to a doctor about this and apparently there's there's more sensors in your feet than anywhere else i think your feet and your lips are the highest amount of sensory nerve endings that we have so what brian got us doing was feeling the actual slopes and everything like that which makes sense and and that opened my eyes. So again, that was, that was last year, another, another uh, improvement in my own ability. But for me, putting, I've, I've, always, I've always tried to keep it simple. I've tried to see the lines, feel it. And then I've always worked on a stroke with a firm left wrist and then my right hand doing, doing the work. has been my sort of feeling on putting. Good man. I've just about got you all the way through the game there. So you touched on this. So obviously you've told us what, the amateur golfer can learn um, from the good players and, and some of the specifics of it. And you touched on this a little bit earlier, but obviously the tour players and the elite players that we both end up working with can also learn a lot from amateurs, business people, can't they, about how they go about their career. So, you know, consequently, what would you recommend, you know, that, the aspiring tour golfer, very much his, his profession and his job, can learn from those people. 
I, I think goal setting and planning, I think are massive. I, I've, I've yet to, I, I met one business guy who imagined whenever he was taking over a, a business, he would imagine it working perfectly. So he would, he would go into the business as it was today and he was into buying businesses that, that were failing, revamping them, selling them on. So he'd go in and he would tell me, imagine them working perfectly. What would it take to make this business work perfectly? So he was visualizing. He was seeing things in his mind, how it would work. And then he was setting goals and he was doing a plan. And then if he saw it working in his mind, that's it, he would go. So I think for learning from that, for me, it was visualization. Uh, for a player now, I'm talking to a player on the phone in the evening. And I said, I want you to imagine your swing working perfectly, what you're searching for. He knows what he's searching for, but seeing himself doing that particular movement. Uh, so from business, I think definitely plans as well. I mean, having checklists. Uh, we were on uh, Greenie practice at Harding Park. It was a WGC tournament. And uh, we did a practice round with Tiger. And afterwards, we're as on the driving do. range. As you do. As you do. It's just a normal day out. I mean, Tiger and Greeny are good pals, so we were fortunate to spend a lot of time. And I think for my own career, I mean, I'd learned, I would say I'd learned more working with players than actually probably I've given them. Uh, I think that's, so it's, it's been great being able to go out there and actually come back a better coach while I'm trying to help them. Uh, with Thomas Bjorn, I learned a lot of putting with Thomas Bjorn. I mean, I spent a lot of time with him and I learned a hell of a lot from the putting side in short game. He's a great player. So I was very fortunate having a period of time with him. But back to the, the range with Tiger. Tiger's practicing and he's hitting about five or six balls and he'd go and stand by his bag and stop. And you could see him thinking and Greeny keeps hitting and they weren't talking. I mean, they've been talking all the way around, but they were just going about the business, very professional, going through all the clubs. But Tiger, I would say, probably stopped about eight times. Really took a, a long thought, then went back in. So we're walking down to the practice chipping area. And I said to him, I said, if you don't mind me asking, I says, could you tell me what you're working on? He says, well, actually, nothing specific. But what I'm trying to do is not just beat balls. I'm trying to organize what I want to do in the next four or five shots. Uh, what am I working on? What do I want to achieve with these four or five shots? He says, then I hit them and then I have to stop and think, have I achieved my goal? And this was four or five shots. If so, now what am I going to do with the next four or five shots? So every shot had a purpose. And that was a, instead of just hitting balls and hitting balls and hitting seven irons and trying to groove something in, it was he, he said, his problem is, he says, I'll hit them until it's dark. He says, I'll just keep hitting and hitting and hitting. He says, so I'm having to stop myself and really think about it. So he was really putting a plan in place of what he wanted out of his session. And I think amateurs can learn a lot from that, is that when they go to the range, to have an idea what they want to do. We've seen it. They just rush on there and start whacking balls. Oh, yeah. I don't think about it. And we've been guilty of it. They just stand there and you start hitting balls and you don't really, you have to sort of stop yourself. Okay, what am I wanting to achieve? Is it, is it a physical move? Is it ball flight? So I, I think really having a clear plan in place. And as I say, for, for our young aspiring uh, players, Generally, it's putting them around successful people. Uh, it's, it's putting them around energetic people, people with energy and humor. And they want to be around people that make them feel good. And 
they feel good because golf out there and tour is a lonely place. It's a place, I mean, we talk about mental health, watching it on TV today with uh, the princes talking. And it, it can be a lonely place, the, the golf side as well. So you've so, got to be around happy people. You've got to be able to have access to ring people up who are going to give you humor. And, uh, but really positivity about what they're setting out. I mean, no business person sets out to fail. They set out to win, to succeed. Mm-hmm. And watch Tiger's uh, documentary the other day, and uh, it was being interviewed by Curtis Strange. And Curtis said, he says, well, this is your first tournament. What, what's your ambitions for this tournament? Tiger went, I'm going to win. I'm here to win. And Curtis laughed. And he, and he very derogatory, really. And he says, well, he says, that's a little bit, uh, uh, I, use, I think he used the word derogatory toward the other tournament players out here, been out here a lot of years and put in their effort. And Tiger says, well, I believe if I'm going to a tournament, if I'm not there to win, I'm wasting my time. I, I should want to win the tournament. This is what I'm here for, is to win. And I mean, and it was literally a few weeks later, he did win. I mean, he came out of the blocks really, really hot. But I think it's that attitude. And, and for players, it's, it's not about trying to get your tour card. Trying is a useless word. It is, right, I'm going to get my tour card. I'm going to then progress on here. Yeah, they don't go, like, I'm going to win the, the, every tournament I'm going to be in. But I mean, Greeny... One of his things, mottos, well, okay, I'm here to win. I mean, some players don't need to be arrogant and say it, but in the mind, they're going to say, you know what, I'm, I'm here to win. Uh, Tim Barter, he did a great interview with uh, Tiger. It's uh, Dubai Desert Classic. And uh, he's interviewing Tiger and he says to Tiger, he says, well, what do you think? He says, well, there's a lot of good players here this week and uh, it's going to be a tough tournament, but I'm looking forward to the challenge. And uh, it, was, it was really, really good. And afterwards, Tim, I don't, I, I don't think you'll mind me saying it. He took, he took it off mic and uh, he said, right, Tiger. He says, you're off mic now. Please tell me, what do you think this week? He says, well, I'm the best prepared. He says, I'm the fittest out here. I've got the best mental attitude. He says, I'm the best player out here. Yeah, I'm here to win. And, and ultimately, and ultimately that's what you need, isn't it? The, the best yeah. attitude and all those attributes. And I think that probably is, is the best thing that anybody can pick up out of this, isn't it? it it's the whole package, et cetera, et cetera, on there. Darren, that has been absolutely fantastic. No one has talked quite so much for me. Brilliant. Um, you are available uh, to coach anyone, uh, whether they be businessmen, handicapped golfers, or elite players, uh, now at Alton Hall, so that people can go online at www.altonhallgolfacademy.co.uk and find out all about you. Uh, all I have to say is thank you, mate. Thank you for coming joining us at our academy number one. Thanks for spending your time on here. Uh, hope you've enjoyed it. Oh, it's been great. It's been great, Mark. Thanks for having me on. Thank and, you, bud. Uh, Take care. See you soon. Bye-bye. You have just listened to the Winning Golf Podcast with Mark Pearson. Please subscribe and review in all the usual places on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, and for further information, visit www.pmg.academy. Take your game to the next level.